I'm Tom Morello, host of Maximum Firepower, a weekly podcast focusing on the music, the moments, and the movements that have shaped my worldview and left an indelible mark on me as an artist and activist. Correct with Maximum Firepower. You and me. This is Tom Morello's Maximum Firepower. I'm Tom Morello, and this is Maximum Firepower. It is a pleasure and an honor to have the great Laura Jane Grace on the show. Laura Jane, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. I have been a fan of Against Me for some time. So today we're doing our top 10 list. And the one that we're going to tackle today is we're each going to reveal our top five favorite punk rockers of all time as we define them today. So, uh, Laura Jane, I'm going to let you go first, in no particular order necessarily, but who is someone on your list of top five punk rockers? Okay, yes, in no particular order. And I also want to preface this, that if I were asked this question tomorrow, my answers may be completely different. Uh, me me I re- too. I, I, I well, reserve that's a caveat. Right. We've got other, yeah, yeah. We, may, we may do another show tomorrow with a completely different <laughs> five, but for, for today, this is where we're at. Right. So... I chose right off the bat, shooting from the hip, Steve Ignorant, who was the singer of Crass. Mm-hmm. Tell our listeners who that is and why that is a great punk rocker. Crass were an English anarcho-peace punk band that I think began in like 1976 or 77, something mm-hmm. like that. And for me, English anarcho-peace punk was highly influential. And Crass, above all bands, just had such a perfect sound and such a perfect visual aesthetic that went along with it all. And their politics were just bar none, you know, like just flawless and really spoke not just across oceans, but kind of across generations. I mean, for me, a young teenage kid growing up in South Florida, I didn't know what the Falkland War was, but Crass told me about the Falkland War. Steve Ignorant yeah, was the yeah. singer of Crass. There is something about the ferocity of his voice and his vocal delivery that left an indelible mark on me. But I also just really appreciate his whole arc to his person or his career, if you want to put it like that. After he was in Crass, he sang a little bit with a band called Conflict, and then he had a band called Schwarzenegger, and then a band called Stratford Mercenaries. And then for a while, he I know he was traveling around the UK doing Punch and Judy shows, like the little puppets, you know? Okay. And then for a period of time, I forget what the exact term is, but he was basically like an air paratrooper rescue ranger where they would, uh, for <laughs> ships that were marooned off the coast of the UK in the north, he would go and jump out of a helicopter and rescue sailors from drowning. <laughs> it's the usual, it's a normal career arc. <laughs> right, right. As a, as, a, as a time to drift into the void and you're like later years in your career, that's a really cool turn to take. <laughs> but then to like come back to music after that, like he's back out there now and he's doing solo records and he tours and he plays crass songs. And it's all done in a really like humble way and a way that I don't know, I, I just really respect. And again, as a lyricist and as a singer, Steve Ignorant was just highly influential on me. Crass is certainly one of the bands that launched a thousand bands, right? For people who are listening who may not be familiar with what was sort of the underlying political artistic thrust of the band that differentiated them from other bands of the era or other bands ever. Well, I guess in in some ways, like, crafts were an introduction to me of something that happens in punk rock of questioning your idols and kind of tearing down your heroes, right? Because, you know, crafts were as 
equally influenced by the Sex Pistols as I was, right? But then, you know, you become a little more punk and you're like, ah, the Sex Pistols aren't punk anymore. And you, you got to tear down Johnny Rotten and Sid Vicious, right? Yes. And then you're like, oh, well, the Clash are the band, right? And I love the Clash and the Clash yeah. were equally as influential on Crass. But then Crass are like, we're going to tear down the Clash. We're going to yeah. take shots at Joe Strummer. <laughs> so that was like an interesting concept that was introduced to me. But they were legitimately a band that really like had real results in a political organizing way like there was an infamous incident where they were investigated by the british secret service because they they faked a phone conversation between reagan and thatcher but they did such a good job at faking it and i guess the things that were talked about in the faked phone call were so spot on with what was actually happening that the authorities were like wait a second do they actually have a phone conversation of mm. reagan and thatcher recorded but their approach to politics was just and their approach to fusing punk rock and politics, I feel like, was revolutionary. And they set a template that every DIY punk band since has followed. But again, yeah. Steve Ignorant in particular as a front person, because, you know, if you look at the band even and break it down, like Penny, the drummer, wrote a lot of the lyrics, if not a lot mm -hmm. of the songs. But Steve as a lyricist, like there is something in the tonality of his voice that I can pick out in other singers that are favorite singers of mine that I don't know what EQ range it is or what the timber is, but it's like, it's there in Axl Rose's voice, you know, like it's mm -hmm, something yeah. in that, in that, <laughs> in that snarl that's just really translates anger, you know, and like passion in a beautiful, yeah, beautiful way. Yeah. And Steve Ignorant has it in spades and also like with that British accent on it too. So it's really cool. That is a excellent and complete Encyclopedia Britannica crass rundown. And that's something that I think if you have if you're listening to this and you haven't checked out crass or their history, it is something that is very unique in the history in the annals of rock and roll. So check out that band. So for me, the first one's going to be Joe Strummer. As a 15, 16 year old, I self-identified as a rock and roller and as an activist, but my rock and roll was all heavy metal. And it was all dungeons and dragons and demons and wizards. And then my activism was the Weather Underground and the Black Panthers and Bobby Sands. And so then when a band came along that had ideas, I thought I was alone. My, my mom was a very radical person, the most, the most radical member of the Morello family. But like there were ideas that someone outside of my household had that made kick-ass records. I couldn't believe it. Like I thought you, those worlds had to be separate. And that there was no possibility. Like, I thought I'm going to be playing some shredding guitar and then go do guerrilla warfare somewhere. Then those are going to have to figure out how those two, those twin passions are going to coexist. And here the Clash were, you know, in their camouflage, you know, rocking me and singing and naming a record Sandinista. And for me, it was like there is a possibility to be authentically who you are in all ways. Like Mick Jones played the occasional guitar solo. And yet... Joe Strummer's you know, uncompromised lyrical vision. The thing about it, too, is the metal bands that I was a fan of were playing, it felt like, for self-aggrandizement. The Clash, it really felt like when I got to see The Clash play at the Aragon Ballroom in 82, it Jealous. really felt, really felt, you know, by the end of this three-minute song, he was trying to change the world. You know, there was like a commitment to this community that they had created and with the ideas in the songs and it felt like just so empowering he also in my mind in order to be in a rock band you had to have a wall of marshall stacks and a castle on a scottish lock if you were doing it right like you had the those are things that were necessary and i just had a little music man amp in the damp basement in my illinois home and it was sitting on a chair when i practiced with my band and joe strummer had the exact same amp 
on a chair at the Aragon Ballroom. Just the wall came down. I'm like, it's not something that I can do one day. I'm doing it. He's doing it and I'm doing it. We're just doing it. That's like the day that I became like an artist was seeing that band and just went home with my band. Like we've already done it. We're not, we're not aspiring to some magical nirvana where we can one day be a band. We're a band right now because we're doing it. Anyway, that's my, so who's next on your list? I'll also add to the Joe Strummer thing. I love the arc of Joe Strummer's career, if you want to say yeah. it like that, of like the Clash being such a life-changing band that has such an influence on so many people. And then coming out of that shell-shocked, you know, and, and yes. kind of being like, we didn't know we could take a break. You know, we just thought yeah. it was go, 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 <laughs> run the band yeah. into the ground. And it did, right? Yeah. And there's such a beautiful arc to the music of The Clash. And you can see this band start being scrappy and then really explore boundaries. And for him to kind of get lost in the woods after that, but then to find his way back with the Mescaleros yeah. and have it be so beautiful and affirming and like its own thing. And I just, I love that. Anyways, my second choice was Kathleen Hanna, mm. uh, singer of Bikini Kill, and then also The Julie Ruin, and also uh, Le Tigre. And similar to Steve Ignorant, I think that Kathleen Hanna's voice possesses that thing, that tonality. There is something in the timber of Kathleen's voice that just shreds. And their spitfire delivery, when they're really just going for it, it's bliss. It's just perfect. <laughs> you know, like it, I, I wish I, there, there's someone who I, I strive to, to emulate in that way. And they're of that ilk of artists that I look at who created their own thing in their own scene, you know, and for Kathleen, I think that was the Pacific Northwest, right? Mm -hmm. And I know they eventually moved to New York or, or wherever, but starting out in like Olympia and with Bikini Kill and just like establishing that own thing there too. When I was first getting into punk rock, it was very much about islands like that. Like I'd look to mm -hmm. uh, the West Coast and Oakland and what was happening in the Bay Area around Gilman Street. And then there was everything that was happening in the Pacific Northwest around like Kill Rock Stars and stuff like that. And then Discord or whatever, East Coast. And just as like an icon, Kathleen, I think is incomparable and just a brilliant lyricist and like a brilliant approach to performing and artistry. Yeah, I'm not going to argue with any of that. Like she was just a superhero of punk rock. You know, when, when I first discovered her, I was just like, it was not dissimilar to the discovery of the clash. It was like, first of all, I was rocked super hard by her band, but also it shifted my perspective about a number of different things. And she's just one of the best ever. So next on my list is Susie Sue. Susie and the Banshees were a band that was 25 degrees over my coolness pay grade. Right. So I was in high school and there was a, a woman that I just like admired in the hallway. Like, like she was like the coolest woman in school. And something sort of felt she saw me. I was an outcast among outcasts in a way. And we, she befriended me by giving me a Susie and the Banshees record. She's sort of like like as a balm. Like, I think this might help. <laughs> <laughs> I think this might help. And she would take me to shows like I was going to like arena metal shows and she would take me to like punk shows in Chicago. But I remember it was on my birthday. You know, I got a bunch of other stuff, but she gave me this Susie and the Banshees record and I put it on. I entered another world. It was a world that I did not know existed. And at the head of this, the queen of this world was Susie Sue. Then later I saw the photographs of her like at those Sex Pistols or Clash shows where she's, it's her and the singer of the Pogues kind of like wrestling around in front of the stage and like her witnessing her having the punk rock revelation sort of in real time in those black and white photographs to then becoming this iconic figure cut to 1991 where Susie's one of the 
headlining acts of Lollapalooza as finally this underground is about to catch fire and she's getting her due, you know, playing in front of 18,000 people a night, you know, with her brilliant self and those anthems. Right on. I really enjoyed Manta Ray, the last solo record that she did. I wish she would do another already, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm Tom Morello. My guest is Laura Jane Grace of Against Me, and we are discussing the top 10 greatest punk rockers of all time, at least how we see it today. All right, who you got next? Okay, so next on my list, I thought it'd, it'd be cool to kind of take a little bit of a different approach, and I put Chris Boert's Loss Larson. If you're not familiar with them, they're a photographer and zine maker for probably like two decades. They did this zine mm-hmm. that was based out of Richmond, Virginia called Slug and Lettuce. And it was a mm-hmm. legit like newsprint zine that would always start off with an essay written by Chris. And then it would feature her photographs of like all the bands that would tour through Richmond and really like documented a lot of Avail and a lot of like the shows at Twisters and just like a lot of really great punk shows. I think it's important to shine a light on the people in the punk scene outside of just people in the bands. And that was something that I've always taken real issue with when people talk about DIY punk rock and the idea of do it yourself. And like, of course, you want to do everything yourself. But DIY isn't about doing it all alone. It's about doing it with your friends and doing it with the community. And the idea that like, Punk shouldn't just be about the musicians because not everyone has musical ability, yeah. but there are other functions in the thing that need to to be a part of it that make mm-hmm. it a scene. You know, the, someone being there to document it and take photos of it for everyone to see and share with it outside of that city is equally as important as the person on stage playing yep. the guitar and singing into the microphone. Someone writing about it, someone cataloging it, and again, they're documenting it, I just think is so important and that those people are just as equally in need of praise and focus or whatever. And I think Chris's body of work is so rad. I wish they still did Slug and Lettuce. I know that they still take photos and write for like Razor Cake and a couple other zines, but I just have always thought they were a really awesome person. That's awesome. Yeah, that no scene can exist or be sustained without those people. Next up for me is Andy Gill of Gang of Four. And... Again, cooler kids were listening to Gang of Four records. And I remember they said, like, you play guitar. You should check out Andy Gill. And they played me uh, some Gang of Four. And my first impression was it sounded like he was playing a song that was a different song than the other people in the band were playing. And I just thought it was a mess. It's not like it's like he doesn't know how to play and it's weird and it doesn't sound like he's playing with the other musicians. And later I realized that was exactly the genius of Andy Gill was that he was looking at the different the instrument in an entirely different way. He brought the confrontational politics of the band into the sonics and making an entirely new vocabulary of what a confrontational guitar could sound like. Then he became my favorite guitar player. And so, so you know, throughout my world of playing guitar, it's been sort of the balancing act between the R2-D2, Andy Gill, and Eddie Van Halen. Like somewhere in that, in that trifecta is, you know, trying to find a, a, a home for myself. But it introduced the idea that the music itself is a weapon in the political struggle and that it doesn't have to be. What The Clash did was like, we can play in any genre and still be The Clash. What Andy Gill did was like, I can play stuff that doesn't belong, and that's the point. And that that was a whole sort of different perspective uh, for me in looking at the instrument and sort of recognizing that, you know, it's just a piece of wood and a few wires and and electronics that can be manipulated in in some non-traditional ways that can make a point. As Chuck D said, the rhythm is the rebel. And very much Andy Gill lived that in his songs. Totally. It's almost like he 
took Joe Strummer's guitar playing and like sharpened it into like a spear or something or That's a right. knife. Yeah. And it was more about like the stabs are on the two and the four as opposed to the stabs That's being right. on the one and the three, you know? Huge Andy Gill fan as well. Okay, so next, kind of continuing on a similar theme as my previous one, is Aaron Comet Bus. Aaron Comet Bus is a very prolific zine maker, does a zine called Comet Bus that's a aesthetically really cool zine. It always just looks really sharp, but uh, is just brilliant writing. And he's played in a number of bands too, Pinhead Gunpowder, Shotwell. He kind of ran in the same circles as Billy Joe Armstrong from Green Day and played in a couple side bands with Billy Joe. You know, one of the issues of Comet Bus is all about him taking a trip with Green Day to Japan and being a fly on the wall for the tour. And I think he occupies a position in American literature that the impact of will not be realized for generations even because of like there is just such a substantial body of work he has written for multiple decades you know like three decades probably and that it's always been completely independent completely on his own terms still the style of like you know send me five bucks in the mail and i'll send you the zine and that it's never been about going out and getting a bigger publisher or getting more press or anything like that it's always been completely on a level and completely brilliant work that there's no other writer you can compare to in punk rock that has done that on mm. that level and with that amount of volume. I think they're a uniquely cool character. I was so fortunate. I had this really special experience with them in like 2017. I got invited out to play the Cindy Lauper benefit that she does every December. They put me up at a hotel right by Central Park in New York, and I had never, I'd never been to Central Park all the years that I had toured through New York. I just never spent the time and gone there. And I realized, I was like, oh, it's December 8th. This is the anniversary of John Lennon's death. And the Dakota is right across the park. I'll walk over there. So I walked across the park. And as I got closer to the Dakota, I could hear people singing Beatles songs. And there was like a group of 100 people. All these people had instruments, you know, basses, guitars, keyboards, stuff, whatever. And everyone's singing. So I, I hung out for a while and I was singing with them. And I saw someone. I was like, I think I recognize that person. Nah. And I took a walk around the Dakota and then I realized the person was kind of following me and then they jumped into a coffee shop and I was like, it's like 10 o'clock at night. This person's getting coffee. They're definitely a punk rocker and that is Aaron Comet Bus. So I went up to him after I was like, hey, you're Aaron. And he's like, yeah. And then we ended up walking around the city and just like having a conversation and hanging out for a couple hours. And it was just a perfectly magical experience that had nothing to do with social media connection or anything like that. It was right. just completely cosmic and speaks to that kind of punk spirit. That's incredible. So, so he was in Shotwell? Shotwell. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he's I, a drummer, so he played with yeah. them uh, for a little bit at least. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Jim Bruce in Shotwell, he's from Libertyville, the town that I grew up in. Anyway, oh, right. So very familiar with uh, Shotwell. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, it's crazy. Small world, small punk rock world. Next on my list is Patti Smith. And it was... It's just her tilting the axis of kind of what's allowed in rock and roll, broadly speaking, that was just so punk. You know, there she is on stage at CBGB's, you know, making stuff up off the top of her dome that's just this brilliant out poetry and, you know, and with a band playing or not playing behind her. And I just thought she was the coolest. You know, I just couldn't. It was like something like something to aspire to that I knew that I would never get there. But that like just the idea of having this kind of poetic personality in the world of punk rock 
was one that was just revelatory to me. And uh, I've had the chance to play some shows with her through the years and is just a tremendously great force of nature for punk rock for the generations. Agreed. I think she like clearly demonstrates to the like kind of lineage between punk rock and art, be that like Dadaism or surrealism or whatever. Like she's like part of that link against me, my band, we played Riot Fest and the bill was us then patty smith and then bikini kill and i was just in heaven it blew my mind it was like the best show ever <laughs> it's like almost as if you curated the show yeah i was like what what is, we've peaked what is even happening here <laughs> all right who's your next so i chose for my fifth a personal connection a person named ingo ebeling ingo ebeling is german they live in germany And they're a tour promoter, a DIY punk rock tour promoter. And they booked the very first Against Me tour in Europe back in like early 2000s. In my mind, and I think in the people's mind who know him, he is the German version of Ian Mm Mackay. And he, he has just like this reverence about him and just this approach to punk rock that is so pure and so beautiful and so very selfless and and Mm -hmm. all the right reason. And the idea of like... American punk bands coming over and touring in Europe, you know, more and more over the years has become something assumed. Whereas when it first started happening, it was probably like, oh, this is so special. You know, we're going to go over to go over to their tour. Now it's just like, well, of course we go over there and tour Mm -hmm. as part of our touring circuit. But Ingo's always put a real focus on like, you're going to come over here and you're going to tour, but also you're going to see things too. And you're going to learn about the history and you're going to learn about the culture. And it's not just going to be you coming here and bringing American culture, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So like for us on our first tour, you know, one of the tour stops was at Dachau concentration camp. And he makes us spend a couple hours there walking around the concentration camp and learning about the history. And he's run a record label side of it, putting out a vinyl for bands and then the touring side where he has a couple vans that he owns in a back line. And he, you know, at a really affordable cost, will line it all up for a band. He'll book the whole tour. He provides the back line, the van, and then he'll provide a driver if he doesn't go out there and drive the tour himself. And that's something that's never really fully even translated in the U.S. More and more, you have kind of like punk rock van rental agencies, if you want to put it like that. But there's mm-hmm. no version of that that exists like in the in Europe where it's Touring around squats, touring around youth centers, staying at the venues, having a meal with the people who are putting on the shows with all the band. Everyone parties all night. Everyone stays at the venue playing foosball or kicker or whatever. Just like a a beautiful approach to it. And I think that Ingo deserves a lot of love and respect. So I wanted to highlight him. Well, that's great. I mean, I I love the fact that you've sort of shown a light on the community. It's an excellent punk rock perspective to, to highlight them. For my fifth one, the one I did choose for slot five is Wayne Kramer of the MC5 a band that I believe the bones on which punk rock, the the flesh of punk rock grew, they've had a big say in that. You know, and before there was Iggy and the Stooges, before there were the Ramones, there was Wayne Kramer, the MC5, who had a sonic template that had all of the markings of what we would later recognize as punk rock. Also, political perspective that was one that was as edgy as any rock band in history up until that point, and a musical perspective that was it spoke to what the clash would later become where there's no box for us. Like the box is our imagination and what in our creativity is wherever it leads us. And that is one of my favorite sort of veins of punk rock. But the most punk rock thing is, is Wayne Kramer's second act where he made some great solo records on his own, went to uh, prison for a while, you know, on drug charges and then came out 
And, you know, just was sort of like the friendly guy around the block who would occasionally play shows. Uh, we played a show together at Sing Sing Prison in 2000 and mid-2000s. And at 60, 61 years old, Wayne had that Saul on the road to Damascus moment and founded an organization called Jail Guitar Doors USA, which... Uh, you know, provides instruments for inmates in penitentiaries as rehabilitation tools, has greatly affected the recidivism rate in hundreds of prisons around the country, runs an, you know, an at-risk youth center here in Los Angeles with a recording studio. And it's like his punk rock arc is so kick-ass that I just, I admire that guy. And he's uh, one of the wisest and greatest humans I know. So I'll settle for Wayne for the last one. I respect and agree with all that. My introduction to the MC5 was backwards in that I first heard Wayne Kramer on the Punkarama Volume 2 compilation that Epitaph ah, Records sure, sure, put sure. out in like yeah. 1993 or 94. And yeah, then yeah. I discovered the MC5. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, Laura Jane, thank you so much for your thoughtful musings on all these topics. It's a real pleasure. Right on. A real pleasure. Huge real fan, pleasure. by the way. So oh, thank, thank you. Thanks so much. <laughs> thanks, Laura Jane. Cheers. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Tom Morello. This has been Maximum Firepower. Thanks again to Laura Jane Grace. Until next time, brothers and sisters, take it easy, but take it. Let foes of justice tremble. This has been Tom Morello's Maximum Firepower. Hear this episode again or listen to past shows right now on the Sirius XM app. Search Maximum Firepower.